0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this is twit bandwidth for dr kiki's science hour is provided by cashfly at c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y dot com this is dr kiki's science hour recorded march 31st 2011 Episode 89, Bacteria, Viruses, and Parasites, Oh My. Welcome to Dr. Kiki's Science Hour. I am not Dr. Kiki. Uh, Dr. Kiki is still away on maternity leave. I believe her beautiful baby boy is now 27 days old. As the nanotracking continues, um, I'm Brian Mallow, sciencecomedian.com. That would be my verbal lower third, I guess. And I think we're going to have a great time today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with um, a science writer, Carl Zimmer, who... Um, has written about now he's up to about nine books i think we 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 just determined and on quite a variety of topics his he's most interested it seems in biology and evolution uh he's written books on bacteria e coli in particular he's written on parasites and evolution and his latest book is about viruses it's uh A planet of viruses and it's due out may 1st from university of chicago press uh say hello to my guest carl zimmer carl you there hey brian i knew you were there that was that was non that was sort of disingenuous because we've already been here (laughs) as they all know brian i'm so surprised you called (laughs) wow what a coincidence maybe we should chat for a while so do it. Carl is uh, an incredibly prolific writer. I'm, I'm very envious of – I don't know how you do it. He has a very popular blog called The Loom that's at Discover Magazine, and he also writes for the New York Times and Slate and other places uh, in addition to these full-length books. I'm currently reading one of them. Um, it's even open in front of me. It's Microcosm, and it's uh, subtitled E. coli and the New Science of Life. And uh, so we'll be talking about that. It's a very enjoyable read. But um, Carl, let us begin with your with the subject you've been spending the most time with lately and the the subject of your newest book, uh, Planet of Viruses. How did this even come about? What what made you decide to write a book about viruses?
1: Well, I don't know. Maybe E. Cole, I was just getting too big for me or something. <laughs> so I had to get even smaller. Um, actually... Um, It it was part of an education project um, that uh, I got involved in uh, based at the University of Nebraska. It's this NIH-funded project. And um, I was working on these essays. I would pick out a virus I was interested in and I would write an essay about it. And then I'd write another one and another one. And after a while, um, the people I was working with said, I think you just wrote a book. And I said, oh, maybe you're right. So we... Uh, I put all these together and we, uh, we got in contact with the university of Chicago press and they're like, yeah, this is a book actually. (laughs) So, um, so then after that, I did a lot of retooling and actually making it into a true book. Um, but, uh, yeah, and now it just, it just showed up in my house just minutes ago. So there it is. Excellent.
0: Yes. Yeah. Very psyched. That distinction you just made. So what would you, I, I think that throughout this, that since we met, at a conference called the science online conference in January, that's all about science communication. I think it would be nice to, to to weave that subject in and out of this, but what would you even say is what, what kind of distinction between uh, what would make it a science book as opposed to what, just a a long essay or a magazine article?
1: Yeah, I'm having a harder time figuring that out these days. (laughs) Um, You know, I, for my blog, you know, I know I'm supposed to write like two sentence blog posts, but I gave a talk in San Francisco about sort of our inner ecology and you know these hundred trillion uh, microbes that we um, share our body with, and I found myself turning it into uh, a, a piece of writing, and and it ended up being five thousand words long, and it's not the sort of thing that you would put in a newspaper. It's too short for a book, so I put it on my blog, but. You know, it's outrageously long for a blog post, but <laughs> but who cares, I guess. I mean, you right. know, you just stick it on insta paper, it's all the same. So just just read it and enjoy, I guess. So yeah, it's um uh, <clears throat> I it's 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 interesting. I'm just old enough that, you know, I, I was brought up in journalism when these barriers were very clear cut. You know, a book was a book, and a magazine article was a magazine article and And there was no that, such thing as a blog. <laughs> Oh yeah, nothing. No, I. I mean, I literally was. You know, I'm. I'm dating myself, but I mean, I, I went up to my editor at Discover Magazine and I said, "There's this thing called email, and we should get it." And and you know, no one had heard of the the web back then, and and um, so yeah, it, that it was long ago, and and it's it's almost inconceivable now. Yeah. So I mean, this is still a book, I think, because. I think the main reason I know that I've written a book is because i can I can go like this,
0: <laughs> yeah, it makes can, a nice sound. you can heave it, it has some mass to it. Well, you know viruses are pretty fascinating, and I guess let, let me do this, and I, I promise i won't subject people to this much, but uh I have a very short video clip uh where I just barely touch on this subject, and maybe you can help me address uh, a question that that i bring up at the very beginning of this short clip this is my take on viruses a from virus a science festival the ultimate david and goliath we must have a height advantage and a mass advantage of trillions uh, on a virus and yet it can take you down it can kill you it's like luke skywalker taking out the death star in a little x-wing fighter and i mean viruses are pretty amazing i bet most of you have a, have a this level of uh, understanding at least that that they go into a cell it's barely a life form on its own but when it goes into a cell it completely takes over the machinery and turns it to its own uses um it's a hostile takeover you know your cells under new management and i mean it really truly it's, it's bizarre like it would be like going into a coke factory and having them make pepsi or weirder like going into a nike factory and having them crank out twinkies And if you think about this kind of stuff too hard, here's the kind of jokes you come up with. A virus walks into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve viruses in this bar. The virus replaces the bartender and says, now we do. An infectious disease walks into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve infectious diseases in this bar. The infectious disease says, well, you're not a very good host. (laughs) that's okay groaning is acceptable the joke is sound (laughs) two bacteria walk into a bar the bartender says we don't serve bacteria in this bar the bacteria say but we work here we're staff all right so carl i hate to subject you to that because i know you've already heard those (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but no, the question—the staff one, man—the
1: staff joke. You I just... know
0: <laughs> <laughs> you had to go for the staff. I had to. I'm not above puns. So you know, uh, one of the questions that I touched there—I uh, wonder if you address this in in uh, Planet of Viruses. But is a virus even a life form uh, on its own?
1: Uh, the the absolute scientific answer is sort of. <laughs> Uh, now, don't get um, too technical with us there. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, you look in the Journal of Virology, there it is, sort of. I mean, it. A, you got to give me a definition of life so that I can know if it fits it or not. And, you know, if you can do that, then, you know, you have just done what centuries worth of philosophers have tried and failed to do. It's very hard to say what it really means to be alive in the first place. Um, and you can say, well... I'll tell you what it is. It's everything that I do, you know, it's it's something that metabolizes and can have kids and whatever. But then I'll say, Well, okay, does that mean it wears glasses and has hair like you? And right. you'd say, Well, no, no, no. I'm we just talking about the essence of life. But no one's had a really great idea about the essence of life is. So let me put it this way. So viruses can't do some of the things that we can do, you know. So they can't they can't host an online uh science show that's for sure <laughs> um and they can't um you know they they can't you know uh go out and eat a plant they can't do that that's true um and they can't really metabolize or at least most of them can't but you know then you get some really weird viruses that seem to have genes the only thing that we know that they do is is they're involved in metabolism so there might be some genes that do at least a little metabolism so it's really blurry um and you know uh,
0: so they're part of life let me put it that way right
1: how's that for a punt
0: that's that's (laughs) okay so well let's say well what do we know what's maybe one of the most surprising things that you learned about viruses in the course of writing this book how about that
1: Oh, well, okay, there there are tons of interesting things about viruses, but sort of the the craziest one is that um, it has to do with the title of the book. I call it A Planet of Viruses. And what I'm trying to say here is that viruses are the most abundant life form on Earth. Let's call them a life form for now. Um, They're the most abundant of anything, and they're also incredibly important on a kind of a global scale, like in terms of, you know, controlling the climate and things like that. I'm not exaggerating. So here's one of those kind of uh, planetary scale crazy facts about viruses. So if you took every virus on Earth and you stacked them end to end, I'll leave that to you to figure out how to do it. (laughs) it. That stack would extend 100 million light years is that possible
0: light years
1: yeah i keep asking i know it is insane i keep asking virologists every time they tell me that i'm like do i have this right do i have this right you know i mean even if it was like one million light years i'd be pretty amazed um but uh, if uh, it's a hundred million um and uh yeah so so i think that that that's my favorite one just because it just showed you just how many of those viruses are seething around on our planet.
0: Yeah. I think you said something about how the, that viruses may have helped give rise to the first life forms. Um, I know that this issue of how life began is still pretty mysterious, but, uh, but what does that mean? What do we know about viruses role in early life? Well, you know,
1: <clears throat> there aren't, it's not like there are any virus fossils floating around. Um there aren't any virus fossils period that that I'm aware of and there certainly aren't any any from like 3 billion years ago. So, uh you have to kind of take a look at the evidence we can look at and kind of infer your way back. So, one thing you can do is you can look at the the tree of life. So how are things related to each other? And, you know, these days what scientists do is they they compare um, sequences of DNA from different species and figure out who's related to who and how old different lineages are. So, you know, our DNA is very close to chimpanzees because we share a close ancestor about 6 million years ago. It's a lot less similar to, um, you know, a palm tree because we probably diverged about, uh, I think, about 2 billion years ago. Um, so when you look at virus DNA, um, some of it looks a lot like the DNA of certain host species, you know, so maybe viruses kind of spin off of pre-living animals or, or bacteria or what have you and, and become viruses. So they're kind of young, but then you get these genes and viruses that are just, if you sort of trace down their branch to to where it matches meets the rest of the tree of life. They go down really far. I mean, it looks like yeah. they go down as far as to the common ancestor of all living things. So there were viruses probably around since the very beginning. And then some people have some pretty wild theories um, that are actually you know seem to explain a lot of the evidence pretty well. That maybe maybe these primordial viruses were the first things that. Uh, invented or evolved dna Hmm. Um, so before that there was some simpler kind of genetic material and so maybe viruses evolved dna as sort of a protection for their genes so when they invaded a host um, the host couldn't chop up their dna and kill them Hmm. and then maybe eventually the host said hey this dna is pretty cool i'm going to take that and make it my genes and now we live in a dna dominated world that's the idea.
0: Yeah, and then so we know now as as far down the line as we are this 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 much more recent development and evolution um we do know that a lot of the DNA in our in the human genome is directly traceable to viruses. Um I think that's another thing is it actually more DNA from viruses than what we consider our own genes? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Then that's a pretty it's a pretty freaky um concept but and and it's it's hard to to believe but um so the here's the thing. So we have uh genes sort of our genes um and there're about 20,000 of the ones that encode proteins. And that only makes up about 1.2 or so percent of the genome. And uh now, then you've got these viruses and wh- these, what happens is that certain kind of viruses, when they, you know, when they infect the cell, some, they, they inject their DNA into their host cell. So that's kind of how they make a living. So they inject it in and then the cell starts m- using that information to make new viruses. Uh, that's like what HIV does and um now eventually that cell that's infected with hiv just dies and zillions of uh hivs pour out and go infect other cells every now and then though these viruses get into a, a sex cell you know uh maybe an egg for example and they put their uh dna in the genome and then it gets stuck there and actually when that egg becomes fertilized and gives rise to a a, a baby that baby is carrying in every one of its cells uh that virus dna are
0: these is this dna uh, that's expressed yeah. that that's making that's making proteins that's that's a part of who we are in that sense
1: mm, uh well yes and no so what it looks like happens is that initially and by initially i mean maybe i don't know hundreds thousands of years <laughs> Um, this is a virus that can actually break out of its host every now and then. Um, so actually, um, believe it or not, this is a problem for koala bears right now. They got infected with a virus that um, can can sort of integrate itself into the host genome and get passed down from one generation to the next, but it can still break out and then go infect other koalas. And it's actually, it, when it infects them, and makes them quite sick and it's a big problem um, now over enough time you know that DNA in that virus mutates and so it loses the ability to break out and uh, it becomes trapped <laughs> and it, after what you know at best what it can do it's sort of in this feeble state where it can um, make a copy of itself but can only insert it back in the same genome it can't actually leave its host cell anymore so it's kind of you know uh, semi-retired And then eventually they get so mutated they can't do anything, and they just sit there. So So it's just like abandoned,
0: uh, lost DNA that's that's taking up space in the human genome? Right. And so about
1: the last I saw, something like 8% or 10% um, of the human genome is from this old virus DNA. And some of it came into our ancestors like 30 million years ago, but you can still recognize it as being viruses you know viruses that are related to HIV or viruses related to weird other viruses like borna virus and stuff like that and it's still there and it what's 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 particularly cool is that every now and then uh evolution has sort of grabbed a tiny piece of this this junk and sort of fashioned it into something useful um so you know um so when babies, when human babies are in the womb, you know they make a placenta which fuses to the mother's body, to her uterus, and there are these little uh, channels that go connect them, and that's where a lot of these nutrients come through. Um, those uh, those connections, uh, that kind of the the glue, as it were, that keeps a baby connected to her, its mother, that protein is from a virus,
0: hmm.
1: and all mammals have it. All placental mammals have it. So, so we could, you know, if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for that virus, I don't know, maybe we would, you know, be growing up in our mother's pouch.
0: Right. Or hatching from an egg. Right. Well, so I, I, I suspect, um, let me see if I know you, uh, well enough. Did you, in the course (laughs) of this, uh, in, in the course of your research for this, did you come to have a favorite virus? I suspect you do.
1: (laughs) Oh, but you see viruses are like children, you know,
0: there's two. It's so hard to pick you, one. You, huh? you you
1: love them all. <laughs> well, yeah. t-
0: start with telling me this. What well, is this one? Like some, there's some that have some pretty crazy effects and, uh, and some horrific effects, I guess. Um, what is this one that makes uh, strange growths come out of humans?
1: Oh, oh, oh. So yeah. So that's uh papillomavirus, Right. Um oh, yeah? yeah so so papilloma virus is you know people probably if they've ever heard of it know it for um cervical cancer mm. um but uh w- lots of people have papilloma virus um it's causes warts um it ca and it sometimes is just sitting on your skin and it's not causing any trouble at all and lots of mammals have it too um and so it's like it's one of these incredibly uh, common viruses just floating around everywhere. Uh, and it does some a lot of different things. Um, and actually, the first time that people noticed a papillomavirus was, uh, well, it actually had to do with this legend. So have you ever heard of a jackalope? Uh,
0: yes, that's the, the mythological, <laughs> or not mythological, but well, mythical, say, uh, the jackalope yeah. part. Jackrabbit, yeah. part antelope.
1: <laughs> right, right. So, like, I remember uh, the first time I saw jackalopes. I, I was riding my bike across uh, country, and and I stopped with my friends in a diner in Wyoming, and they had this big <laughs> uh, like collection of postcards for sale of jackalopes, and and they had like a jackalope on a wall, if I remember. Yeah. So ba- you're looking yeah, I know at I like, mo- most rabbit. sightings
0: of jackalopes are on postcards. <laughs> Or perhaps yes. on walls mounted on walls <laughs> that might be approaching a hundred percent of the sightings, but it's evidence right yes,
1: <laughs> so yeah, so the, you know the, the I mean i it, so the things that you see in these diners are basically rabbits, probably with i assume it's pronghorn antelope horns stuck on them, um or I don't know clay or something, you know, but uh basically uh it's all fake, except it's not totally fake. the fact is that um you know people would see rabbits with growths on their head and they kind of looked like horns hmm. and they're like what is this and so actually uh a scientist back east um he uh he had a friend who hunted in in I believe Wyoming um just kill a couple of these rabbits and ship them back to him and he would grind up those horns and see if there was something interesting in it. I mean this is pretty early on. This was like uh about I think 80 years ago now. Um in like the 30s if I remember. And uh so basically uh he had some pretty crude scientific equipment, you know, just let's grind stuff up. And uh but he ground up these these jackalope horns and then would uh, inject them into rabbits, other rabbits, and lo and behold they would grow up with these horns or Gross, so some of the virus
0: is actually up there in in that horn as well, or its DNA. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: and and so you know when it gets so when it gets in people, um, usually it doesn't cause that much harm. But um, so if, if it gets there, there are some forms if they get into you know a, a woman's cer- cervix, then they can cause cancer, and it's a it's really a serious problem. Yeah. Um, and
0: uh, as opposed so, like, to the minor uh, problem of just having horns. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, well actually other you know, so people have sometimes have this problem. I don't know if you ever uh uh heard about this guy who went by the name of tree man. The tree man sounds so, uh, familiar. A couple years ago, um there was a, a man or actually a teenage boy um in Indonesia who was being um taken around basically as a freak show yeah and it, and his hands had grown into what looked like gigantic tree branches mm. and it was just it was just totally um surreal and um he had human papilloma virus. The problem was that he his immune system couldn't keep it in check um and so it would just um basically what was happening was that the virus was taking over his cells and instead of just killing them, he was having the, actually the virus was having the cells grow fast and they grew so fast that they produced these growths that would just, just, just take off. And so um doctors came and uh did when he came into the news, doctors showed up and they, they cut off a lot of these growths and then they would just grow right back. Um So it, he started needing this constant medical care to keep these viruses in check because yeah. um, they're just, they're, they're, cause, yeah, cause they're, they're, they're really odd because they don't, you know, they're not like, like a flu virus. You get the flu, I mean, it gets in your airway and it just, it's just out to kill. You know, it's just going to invade cells in your, in your uh, airway and just use them up, blow them up and spew out lots of flu viruses and move on to the next victim. Um, Papilloma virus does something very different. It says, no, I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to actually make you grow faster. Because if you grow faster, then there are more of me.
0: Yeah, you know, that's a crazy Most the- thing about all these yeah. things that infect us. That it's, it's amazing to me that something, like a virus, that um, maybe if it's on your hands, it's harmless. If it's on your arm, it's harmless. But it has to get into your eye, and then all of a sudden it does something. That idea that these viruses that... They they don't do much until they get into the wrong place. There's things that are bacteria that are on our skin and are harmless, but if they get inside Mm -hmm. us, they're harmful. Uh, There's something kind of amazing. Yeah. So yeah, you know, now in some cases it's just
1: that. um, So like, if you got skin uh, skin bacteria and it and it gets into a wound, say, and into your blood, I mean, that's not that's actually not a great thing for the bacteria itself but there's nothing uh there there are things that are keeping it in check on your skin it's in a certain balance um, for a lot of different reasons it gets in your blood and another sort of those those breaks are taken off and it just reproduces like crazy it makes you sick but it's not actually particularly good for the bacteria you know it's, it's not where it because wants to be. right it gets transmitted from skin contact so what's it doing in your blood I mean how's that gonna help it whereas with you know these viruses you're talking about. I mean, uh, they're they're very adapted to making you sick in in one particular part of your body for their own benefit. It in a so way it's, that'll
0: help them spread. And like sexually transmitted, is what an amazing mechanism, <laughs> yeah. right? You're you're just yeah. you're fairly uh, likely to be you know uh, to 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 be able to pass on because the the it's, species it's, you're right. infecting wants to reproduce.
1: Right. It's just, it's a great, it's a great, great way to get from one individual to another, you know, because that is like yeah. one of, that's a very f- common form of contact. Um, now, the thing is that you got to be able to live in a certain kinds of environments, you know, for that, um, yeah. and, and, uh, you know, uh, and and so that
0: takes over for a lot of adaptations, shall we say. Uh. Um I saw you mention somewhere that ab- ab- about AIDS, we don't, he- I, it, it seems like at least in, in my experience, in my lifetime, like we, we're not hearing about AIDS and HIV as much as we were uh, at one point. But, um, I, I, I guess it's, uh, is this right? It's, it's, it's evolving in a bunch of different directions. Is it, is it, uh, how, how fearful do we have to be about the HIV virus today?
1: Well, you know, i uh, it's still um you know one of the uh, still a massive uh, scourge if you <clears throat> think about it worldwide um something like I think about sixty million people uh are still have it uh and those rates are are still going up overall you know that being said uh it's it's certainly in a lot more control in a lot of places um and you know there are treatments that people can take now to, to keep it in check. Although, you know, these, these antiretrovirals also have, you know, they have some side effects. Um, and so it's not, it's not a free lunch as it were, but, um, still, yeah, HIV is not, is not a death sentence if you can afford these drugs. Well, that's Uh, a problem. I mean,
0: where it's a problem in Africa, I, 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 suppose no one there can, can afford the drugs
1: Right, right. I mean, if you're making a dollar a day and someone says, you need to take these $10 a day of drugs, it's like, well, hmm, it's going to be a problem. Um, and yes, unfortunately, you know, HIV is um, constantly evolving. I mean, it, it's viruses, particularly uh, viruses like HIV, are, um, they evolve very quickly because they have a high mutation rate. Uh, they're very sloppy when they copy themselves. And so that means that, you know, even in a single, um, in a single host, um, you know, there, there will be a lot of natural selection going on and, you know, there's, there's some concern that, the, that, they could, um, they could become resistant to some of these drugs. Um, and we don't know if that's going to happen or not. Um, and, you know, there are, the, what scares me more is that, you know, HIV it's actually a few different related viruses that crossed over into our species from from chimpanzees came over from chimpanzees maybe like three different times, uh, and also from a, a monkey uh, as well. And so, um, so there are a lot of other uh, similar viruses in in primates, and you know they they may not be making us sick now. But they might in the future, just so, by virtue that, of if they mutate they the wrong violence. way,
0: it, a future mutation and suddenly right, they're right. a problem for us. So,
1: yeah, yeah. So, so, but you know, they have to be getting in the the way. It seems that viruses cross over and become you know dangerous to us is that we're sort of getting regularly exposed to them, and so it seems that the way that people got exposed to HIV was with hunting. Hunting chimpanzees uh, and uh, hunting monkeys, bush, the bushmeat trade. Um, you know, you, you're, the people are killing infected animals. You know, maybe they have a cut themselves, and so there's a lot of, uh, you know, they're they're getting infected. And you know, maybe a hundred years ago, the viruses weren't very good at then, you know, infecting people. But over time, you know, with enough evolution, bingo, they started to take advantage of this new host, and then they took off.
0: Well, let me ask you, let me shift a little. Like, it's it's interesting to me that you've written entire books now about viruses, about bacteria. In fact, uh, in particular, the one bacteria, E. coli, and another entire book, Parasite Rex, that's just about parasites. So all of these parasites, bacteria, and viruses, um, although all bacteria and um viruses might not be parasites they are parasitic in, in a way or a, a very many of them are symbiotic with us obviously but um what is it carl like and what else is left to you now that you've done those <laughs> <laughs> do you have your sights set on is there something else to complete this theme or uh what mm. is it with are are you, are you were you always into like the morbid and Stephen king and horror and gross stuff or Medical oddities,
1: yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I I, I certainly (laughs) was. (laughs) Um, but I don't think I was alone, no. (laughs) And, um, you know, I I do actually write about uh lots of other things as well. I mean, I wrote a book called Soulmate Flesh, which was about the the dawn of neurology in the 1600s and um some of my, i put some of my writings about the brain together for an ebook called brain cutting so i can i can write about <laughs> about humans too actually um uh, whether you consider humans a parasite or not i guess we can discuss but
0: um <laughs> i think there's a lot I, of I evidence that we is, are yes
1: yeah well um we're just not very good parasites i think yeah. that's the problem
0: at least, if not parasites, <laughs> maybe a scourge. <laughs> Would that be a yeah. from from a global <laughs> point of view? Um, you know, e, the, the, your your E. coli book, uh, Microcosm, is great and and beautiful writing in it too. Just in terms, like just really wonderful in the way that your opening scene, um, you're holding a little petri dish that has some E. coli growing on it and you're just, you're talking about it and the life outside your window and you actually look through it out at the, out out at the view through your window. And then you say that you're, you're going to look at life through the lens of E. coli. And sure enough, that's what the book does. The book is not just about E. coli, but E. coli is maybe the, uh, most, uh, the best researched microorganism maybe on the planet and it's a it's a good model for actually
1: the best the best the best research organism period yeah not just best not just microorganism we know a lot more right we i think i think you could argue that we know a lot more about um how e coli works than about how humans work just in terms of sort of if you look at you know what percentage of of the genes in the human genome do we understand versus what percentage of genes in E coli do we understand the thing is that with E coli people have been studying it for 100 years and they made it into the, basically the model organism they would study to understand life itself so so we know E coli really well and that and as you say that that's that was my goal in the book i mean it's not just uh writing about one weird gross bacterium but just saying Hey, actually, believe it or not, this odd little creature uh, has told us a lot about what we know about life in general, including ourselves.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that that makes it uh, great to study, not only does it have a, a smaller genome so that, uh, you know, now our gene sequencing techniques are, are very quickly accelerating to the point that... Uh, that pretty soon it'll be very easy to just sequence an entire genome of an individual. But, uh, but historically in recent decades, you know, the fact that, that, that E. Coli had such a small genome made it easier to, uh, to analyze on that level. But also because, it can go through so many generations so quickly. So there's there's a guy that you wrote about, and I guess he's back in the news. There's it's, and I guess he'll continue to 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 make news because he has a very long running evolutionary study of E. coli. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Richard Lenski. He's at Michigan State. Um. So about twenty, just over twenty years ago, he took one E. coli essentially, and and started breeding it. And he took the clones from, from this E. coli and started 12 different lines in, in 12 flasks. And each flask would get a little bit of glucose in the morning and they would feed <laughs> on it and then they would run out of food. And then it had to basically survive for a day until uh, the following morning. And then Lenski or one of his students would come along with a little, and draw out a little bit of that fluid from that flask and stick it in a new flask with a lot of fresh Glucose, or, and that would grow again and repeat 20 years. Uh, and for E. coli, that, that, was, that actually works out to be, I think, 52,000 generations so far. Lenski, I discovered actually on his website at Michigan State University, if you, uh, if you look up Richard Lenski, Michigan State University, you'll get to his website. And he's actually got a counter now. <laughs> How um, many generations? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so excellent. you can see precisely how many jurisdictions he's up to. It's hysterical. It's over 52,000.
0: Well, let me uh, ask you something.
1: And, because, yeah? Okay, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that, I mean, what he what he wanted, the reason he did this was not just to sit around watching E. coli grow, but because it mutates and it basically adapted to, oh, there it is. Yeah, 52,572 and almost to 0.5, I guess. Yeah. So anyway, there you go. Um and rolling. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, hourly, I think. You know? Oh, and, I think it just um,
0: moved. Did it? <laughs> it? I don't know. It it might have. That little tenths uh thing may have shifted a little. Because how quickly is a generation? Is it hours? Uh well it can E. coli can
1: grow in as little as twenty minutes. It can okay. divide every twenty minutes, but that's like when it's going totally berserk. Mm-hmm. Um, his stuff is probably going, you know, maybe, um, I forget, maybe like something on the order of once an hour or something like that. Um, you know, it's, it's slow.
0: (laughs) He's been able to track changes. He's been able to see, uh, new and different behaviors and abilities in different strains of E. coli compared to the older generations.
1: Yeah. So he can actually, um, he he freezes some of the E. coli every 500 generations. And, and he's got these giant freezers with names like uh, Valhalla, you know, because <laughs> that's where the heroes go to, to rest. But then the the heroes can be resurrected. Uh, he just takes these things out of the freezer, thaws them out, and he can stick the ancestors and their descendants in the same dish and, and see how fast they grow compared to each other. Like Thunderdome. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Two microorganisms enter, one <laughs> one microorganism leaves. <laughs> like right, 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 right. <laughs> but but yeah, but 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 I don't know. But it would be more
1: like some sort of um uh I don't know, it'd be like alien versus predator, except yeah. I don't know, it would be like uh uh the Terminator versus Thor or something like that, you know, because these are these are E. coli that have been separated by thousands of generations. Right. Uh and he can just he can have them side by side and see what they're like side by side.
0: Now, I don't know uh, if you address and, this um, I'm not, in, in in microcosm because I haven't finished yet. But um, so he has seen changes that that we say are ev- ev- evidence of evolution. But have we seen how come with so many generations we we haven't seen E. coli change into a different species? Have we? And how would we know if it was a different species? Well. He may have, actually.
1: Um, It's a little dicey uh, saying what is and isn't a species, particularly within bacteria, um, because, um, you know, the the definition that people like to use for species is, well, it's it's these individuals that can, can breed together. Right. And, you know, E. coli doesn't 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 get it on the way that animals do, so uh, so that's out um, but in any case so so microbiologists have this sort of list of, of ways of identifying e. coli and you know does it grow on glucose? yes, okay, does it grow in the presence of oxygen? yes, good. Now, one of the things that is sort of one of the hallmarks for e coli is um, is it able to grow on something called citrate? that's what makes lemons kind of tart uh, is it able to grow on citrate in the abs- in the presence sorry of oxygen and if the answer is yes then what you've got is not e coli uh,
0: you just look at normal the, what we, we the call books. e coli is
1: not able to do that right so one day uh somebody in Linsky's lab basically you know walked in to check on the on the e coli and discovered that one of the flasks was very cloudy. In other words, it had really taken off and uh, it was growing much faster and it must have found something else to eat because hmm. there isn't much glucose in these flasks. And they figured out that it was starting to eat citrate. And they were able to show that it actually it evolved the ability to eat citrate. And so, you know, if... I don't know, if it, if it actually breaks <clears throat> a definition... Uh, a species definition. It sounds like it has become a new species to me. but yeah. uh, Lenski is very, very cautious. Um, I actually wasn't able to get that into microcosm
0: because he you know what? Oh, oh was, hang on a, a second. Corcosm. We're getting a little weird. Uh, I don't. Oh, I wonder if it's only when you're talking. We were just getting a really bad audio sound. Say something again. Okay. How's okay. Oh uh, it, so? yeah. It's when you talk. I don't know why, but all of a sudden we. We've started. To, a, a a, a kind of phones, noise on Yeah, I'll tell you what. Can you. Are you using a mic or are you just speaking into. I've got a, head, got a headset. Okay. But yeah, can a, you unplug an, your head mic head, and let us call oh. you back in just a second? Just uh, let's disconnect. Unplug your mic and plug it back in and we'll call you right back. Okay. okay. All right. Thanks. Sorry about that. And. <laughs> We'll see if this fixes it. The classic, unplug it. <laughs> Always the first line of defense, right? Reboot. We don't have time for that. Let's see if we can get him back. Hello? 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 Oh, that sounds much better. Oh, excellent. Okay. Okay. So, sorry about that. No, really no, no, no problem. I,
1: I've done podcasts and we're using Skype and it's, it's, um, it's a beautiful thing some days and some days it just makes you crazy. So, yeah.
0: so okay. So, um, he's very cautious about what, what Lenski wants to call this development, but it looks like the development of something much different from the strain of, of E. coli that he was raising with a, a, yeah. a very different kind of ability.
1: Right. So maybe I would not be surprised if maybe in say 3 years he publishes a paper say a, a paper that names this microbe sitting in one of his flasks as a new species. Yeah. And and he watched it become a new species. Uh but that, you know, that's that's just my wow. my prediction based on, you know, what I've read. I mean, he he's not going to like He's not going to say anything on the record or even off the record about right. it until he's dotted all his I's and crossed all his T's. Because this is, you know, this is pretty uh this is pretty big deal stuff and, and yeah. it's it's the sort of stuff that, for example, creationists love to try to beat up on because yeah. they don't like the idea that you can actually study natural selection uh in, in our own time. So they prefer to say, well, this isn't natural selection or
0: something like why, that. Why do you characterize it just like that? Why do you think they don't like that ability—that was an interesting characterization of their point of view. Um, well, because uh, the, oh, well, you, know, they, well, you mean creationists who don't believe there's any evolution happening? Um, right. Certainly don't want to believe there's any chance that. To, but now we've had evidence. Now, if we don't have clear evidence of species evolving into new species in very in in times that would short times that would surprise Darwin, we've seen uh, populations change dramatically change physical features oh sure yeah like like the beak of the finch right that was isn't that one of your favorite science writers when i asked you for a couple favorite science writers you said yeah uh, yeah is that jonathan Jonathan wiener Wiener wrote the beak of the finch
1: yeah 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 wonderful book yeah people should definitely read it if they haven't
0: and in in just the course of a couple seasons uh, uh the beak size or shape or size of the of these finches beaks has has changed
1: Right, yeah. So the, these are Darwin's finches that live on the Galapagos Islands, and it's a pretty rough place with a lot of droughts uh, followed by heavy rains. You know, through these kind of El Nino cycles, and um, you know these these birds sometimes will find themselves in a year where uh, there's nothing but really tough seeds around, and and you know, all the all the nice soft food is gone. So if you don't have a beak that can handle that. Um, you probably just die <laughs> and so you can you can see the selection for uh, beak size and shape one year to the next and and it 's just there it is um, and it changes direction depending on um the f- sort of food that 's around, and so you know they can actually measure this in in a very statistical way, which is something Darwin never imagined you know uh, which is ironic because Darwin. They're named after Darwin because he first went to the Galapagos and collected them, um, but he had no idea just how important they would be in this regard. Yeah, um, but there are lots and lots of other examples. the The thing with with Rich Lenski's uh, E. coli work is that, um, you know, you've got everything. I mean, you've got the ancestors, you've got You've got this this record where that ha- and everything has been taking place under His watchful eye. And because E. coli is so small, you can sequence genomes now. I mean, when he started this, he did. There was no way, actually, that he could, you know, right. uh, identify genes or anything. Uh, this was twenty years ago. Now he's like, okay, which genomes will I sample? Oh, I think I'll do ten. Boom, 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 boom. You know, it's just like a few hundred bucks a pop. What does he care? So he, so now he just has this unbelievable window in, into evolution. So I think that's just one of the reasons why he comes
0: under attack a lot from creationists right um so i uh i want to repeat that my guest is carl zimmer and uh go follow him at, at carl zimmer um show him the power of the twit network uh when, when it when it comes to, to to twitter at carl zimmer uh let's see and um let's talk about parasites a little bit Because uh, you've got parasite Rex, great. Yeah, you seem to really like that subject. When I when I mentioned it, you said, "Well, now that's we're talking about your world, the world of parasites." And that's right. One of the things that got me thinking, I just saw something uh, for something bacterial, um, which is that there was a new story about bacteria in our guts uh, having an influence on our minds, and and there might be a correlation between and uh between the bacterial fauna or flora i guess in in, in our guts and and our d- the development of our personality that seems so bizarre and surprising that's because you're just not willing to submit
1: <laughs> to the true you, source of the power yeah yeah that's right that's right you are not you're not willing to accept that you are not Uh, an individual but you're actually a super organism
0: we are aren't we
1: you are an ecosystem yeah thousands of species and and look and and i have to correct you on this uh that these are not parasites that are doing this
0: right 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 i was gonna the uh these are our symbiotic uh bacteria that we depend on in our gut right right um the thing is it was like if i I cleaned you out of those i'd be in trouble huh you would be very sad, yes. Yeah. That's amazing how that would even come to be that we would that in order for us to to properly digest our food that we're dependent on uh, this other organism, how this kind of symbiosis occurs throughout the animal kingdom. But you know what happened yeah. is I read this and it, it led me to this other story about this fungus that can infect ants and 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 then control the ant on the macro level. And this is not the only example of it, but parasites that get into something and then they they keep referring to them as zombies because then the fungus controls the ant.
1: Right, yeah. So this is called cordyceps. And, um, you know, actually there's, um, I forget the name, one of the um, antibiotics that's used a lot is actually made by cordyceps. Um so when you go to the doctor and he, and they prescribe you an antibiotic, you might be taking a sort of zombie parasite uh compound huh. so what and what what, what it's it's really uh uh I, I do remember like the first time I read about this um uh and, and it was in, in this wonderful book um oh gosh i 'm blanking on it unfortunately uh it was this wonderful book uh about this Museum and the reporter can't decide if the museum is all a fake or not. Right. Uh, he's pretty sure it's all fake, but he can't tell. And, there, and the fakest thing, he thinks, is this, <laughs> this fungus. Um, and then he discovers that it's real. And so, so what's so unbelievable about it is that, is that when a, an ant gets infected uh, with this fungus... You know, it, the spore kind of burrows into its skin, through its uh, cuticle, and goes into its body, and then it starts to feed on the insides and starts to send out these little tendrils just inside its body. Initially.
0: But it doesn't kill it. Oh no, 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 yes, <laughs> that's
1: right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want to, you know, you want to want to burn down your your restaurant. Right. Um So, uh, so, but but what does happen is that the the ant. Um, after a while when the only when the fungus is really ready to uh to move on to the next step um the ant gets this urge to climb up and it climbs up uh plants and uh clamps on to the undersides of their leaves and it's very specific so there's this one uh this one scientist who uh found that um uh that they only go um the ants only end up on the, like the north by northwest side of these leaves, <laughs> and only like a couple feet up off the ground, because the fungus is trying to get to the perfect weather conditions, the perfect uh, temperature, the perfect humidity, the perfect amount of sunlight, where it can then grow. And so what it happens is it basically fills up the whole body of the ant, and then then tendrils start to come out, the fungal Tendrils start to come out from the ant and sort of glue it to the leaf, um, and the and the ant kind of starts to mummify. Eventually, it dies. We actually have a picture too. Finally, the most spectacular, yeah, yeah, show the picture. One of the ants with
0: the thing growth coming out of its head.
1: Yeah, this is the most spectacular uh, stage because what happens is that um, the ant, uh, a giant stalk grows out of uh, the ant's head, usually. And, um, and and, the, and the, there's a big uh, package of spores on, on top. Yeah, there we go. So, um, so, that, so that big ball that's sticking off that, that stalk on that ant on the bottom there, which is a little easier to see, that is... Um, oh, thanks. Great. Yeah. So that's all fungal spores. Now, that, that leaf has actually been turned upside down so actually, uh, in nature, the the, would the ant hanging. would be pointing; it would be hanging, pointing down to the towards the ground. That ant is holding on to dear life uh, to that uh, little vein there, and um, then the fungus spores. That little package just pops open, and uh, yeah, and there's another one showing it hanging upside. Yeah, that's how it really looks like, and it's totally surreal. I mean, every- so the fungus. Spores just just start raining
0: down on other ants. Every aspect of this is incredible. The fact that that the uh, the fungus inside it can can do something to cause the ant to do that specific behavior, climb up a plant to a certain height, and then clamp its teeth down. Uh, it just it's hard to wrap your mind around that. How that could well, exhibit okay, such but mind th- control. But to,
1: well. Yeah, to some extent, but I mean, I—I th- I mean, nobody knows how they do it. Let me put it that way. But, um, but it—you know—you can start thinking about it by thinking about things like Prozac. You know, I mean, there there's just a fairly simple molecule. You take it, and you're different. You your your personality is different, right. um, and so you know. And fung- fungi are great at making chemicals. So like I said they make an antibiotic. Actually they they use this antibiotic inside the ant. Because as the ant is dying off, you get bacteria moving in and they want to like feed on this yummy dead ant. And the fungus is like, "Whoa, back off. You know, this is mine." So it makes antibiotics that ward off bacteria and basically keep the ant um sort of bacteria free. Um so they, they have a whole kind of, you know, pharmacopoeia in there. And so if they make some, some you know, psychoactive drugs for the ant, that's fine. Yeah. But it is pretty weird that they're able to get an ant to go to, you know, point X. Right. Go here on this
0: leaf. Yeah. I don't,
1: I, yeah, nobody knows how to do that. It is freaky.
0: Um, I don't know if Alex will recognize this. There's, there's a picture of a fish. <laughs> that's a fish mouth. That uh, there's another parasite. Now we're talking larger parasites. So lest someone think that the only parasites you're interested in are microscopic, um, tell me something about this fish and crustacean relationship. Yeah. So this
1: is a, um, th- this parasite's called an oh, isopod. Oh, you don't have it?
0: So oh, I don't know if we have. Well, you can
1: describe this anyway. It's a, uh, there's some
0: open, I thought, I okay. thought we had that.
1: Um, but that's okay. If you go to my website, uh, if you go to my website, carlzimmer.com, dot com, and if you go go to books, then go to Parasite Rex, and then there'll be a little oh, you know of images what? there. How
0: about this? I got it right here. This is low tech, but okay. uh, like, <laughs> why don't you tell us what it is? I know it's in it's.
1: Yeah, it's in, I reproduced it in my book. So basically, what happens is that this. Um, there you go. Thank you. Yeah. So oh, that there little there's the isopod in there. Um, basically, what it does is it swims into a fish's mouth and. Uh, Devours the fish's tongue; it eats it. Um, yeah, and the the top picture there is sort of a cutaway side view, and um, and and then it it appears to just sort of it stick its legs between the gills, uh, the little gill rakers of the fish, and then just hang out. And uh, as far as anybody can tell, it actually becomes the fish's tongue.
0: <laughs> the crustacean becomes the tongue of the fish and functions yeah. as a tongue, and which. Uh, but it must be getting its own nutrients somehow in the process.
1: Well, yeah. So, so it's I in mean, the mouth. <laughs> fish. Yeah, right. So fish don't fish don't use their tongues the way we do. The fish use their tongues more to sort sort of either push food back or to sort of uh, kind of as a surface to mash it up on. So you know, this isopod's got a pretty hard back, and um, so basically, there's all this food coming along, and it's getting broken up and so on, and so the isopod just hangs around and just slurps some of it up, um, and you know no it's possible that um that the fish doesn't really mind you know I mean these fish that get caught with these isopods they're not scrawny, they're not a death's door they're okay, so um who knows maybe maybe they it goes from being a parasite to a symbiont and uh, right. you know an incredibly creepy disturbing symbiont you know I mean if I suck up my tongue and you saw, you know, a giant silverfish instead. You'd be disturbed. Right, right. I could understand. And that
0: fish was doing fine with its own tongue. So it's not, unlike yeah. some of our symbionts, um, it was doing okay with its own tongue. <laughs> it didn't require right. that right, to right. survive. But yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that's, so we actually, if, if, if we count just cell count, the human body, what we think of as the human body has more bacterial cells than what we think of as human cells, but maybe, they're so maybe much tinier—maybe ten times more. But but they're quite a bit smaller, huh? Yeah, they're, yeah.
1: They're right. Yes, they are. They are smaller, but but um, you know, size and everything. And right. um, so uh, each of those bacteria has may have a couple of, uh, at least a few hundred and maybe several thousand genes that we don't have so um, if if you want to think of all the genes in your body um, actually um, so we have about twenty thousand protein coding genes, and it uh, our microbes might have something like twenty million genes, hmm. so about um, a thousand times more so this this human genome project you know I like to think of it as you know kind of a nice start, right. but, um, you know scientists are just now really starting to sequence all the the, the Microbiome genes, and so some of these genes are making proteins and other things that are getting into our guts and into our bloodstream, and then eventually crossing the blood-brain barrier, and you know doing these disturbing things like influencing our personality. Um, and and so there's a lot actually there's there's a lot of molecules that the, that our microbiome sends towards our brain. Right, there's that, a lot. That, uh, that recent
0: thing that the, not that, only do they
1: influence. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, no. Not only they recent. I was just going to say, not not well. Not only is this personality stuff uh, interesting, but you know, believe it or not, they seem to be able to send signals to your brain that control your appetite. Huh?
0: So (laughs) they're involved in any diet program? Yeah, feed us. Oh, telling you to feed them. They're hungry. You think you're hungry, and it's just your 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 E. coli.
1: Yeah, yeah, and they've done experiments with mice where they actually can raise mice that don't have any germs in them and then they uh uh basically uh transplant germs into their bodies. Uh and so they um they will uh take um mice that are raised like on a western diet or 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 mice that have gotten really fat or both. <laughs> and they find that these mice once they they take in these these uh, bacteria, um, they get really fat. But not only that, but they get really hungry. Their appetite goes way up. And the only difference is that they have bacteria in them. Um, wow. If they have bacteria from other mice, they don't get as hungry. Hmm. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah. my bacteria, you know, my bacteria made me
0: fat. I mean, you could. Maybe you can say that, right? Right? Yeah, I'm big boned, or it just runs in my family, or it's it's my <laughs> microflora. I, you know, the one I'm, that I'm I saw. Big yeah. I'm sorry, I lost you. Oh, I, I'm big microbiome. Exactly. I, the one I saw recently was that. So they did the same thing. They had two populations of rats, and one was germ-free uh, in, in its gut, and or I don't know how they. I, accomplish that but 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 presumably so one population doesn't have some some key microorganisms and the result was they had a different kind of behavior when they ran these mazes that they relate to anxiety so another that that they were less fearful so Mm -hmm. and i guess there's other examples where things if they either are or aren't infected with something they then behave differently like in such a way that they might get themselves eaten and sometimes that's the parasite's Uh, method of getting into the next creature
1: yeah 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 exactly so so with the bacteria um i as far as i understand it there doesn't seem to be any particular kind of adaptation about changing a host personality it may just be kind of a side effect i don't know though it'd be interesting to see but but there's this other thing that i think you're talking about which is um It's a protozoan, so it's single-celled, but these cells are much bigger than bacteria, uh, and it's called toxoplasma. And so that's, you know, when women get pregnant, they're not supposed to handle kitty litter. Well, that's because um, toxoplasma lives in cats, and they shed it uh, in their droppings, and then toxoplasma needs to go into another host, a different species, to to grow and go into its next stage of its life cycle, and then eventually it has to get back in cats. And so, it, if pregnant women get it, um, you know they can't. the the If their uh, if the f- uh, fetus is exposed, you know they don't have an immune system that can hold it in check, and so they can get brain damage. But if you're a healthy adult. Perhaps you sir hmm. um you might have toxoplasma you might at some point have been exposed because it's incredibly common <laughs> like a quarter at least a quarter of all people carry it and you and so let's say for the sake of argument that you are toxoplasma carrying okay that all means right. that you got thousands or tens of thousands of cysts of this parasite in your brain and they're not Dead, they're alive, they're just hanging out and, and essentially just waiting. And they're they're releasing molecules out of those cysts. Um, and these are are molecules that might be a bit like Prozac, uh mind-altering drugs. And so with the rats, what seems to happen is that the rats, you know, a rat infective toxoplasma is fine, it's healthy, it's normal the only difference that anyone can really find is that they are not afraid of the smell of cats. Yeah. That's it. So, you know, maybe that means that, that the rats get eaten more often by cats and and then so the toxoplasma with that with the genes for that manipulation, they're the ones that won out. Um and so what's really kind of freaky is to think, well, okay, if they can do that to rats and then they're in us too, what are they doing to us?
0: Yeah. What 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 motivations that, that like what mm-hmm. yeah, I I I can't trust myself. The main message I'm getting here though is that you don't really have to do drugs if you befriend the right microorganisms. Is that right, what I'm exactly. hearing? Is that your next Exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a you have a dealer on the inside, basically. Yeah. You know, I mean someone who's like administering drugs to you every moment of the day. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And of if course, we, eventually we need to really befriend some nice like photosynthetic uh, microorganisms <laughs> so that we don't need to eat it all and... You know yep. what? Um, so we're almost out of time, but I, 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 so let's, let's finish off with something kind of fun. Not that this hasn't been fun, <laughs> parasites and infections and no, but, but, um, a long time My ago, kind you, of- you started amassing this collection of science tattoos. And before it you did. know it, uh, it culminates in you having to put out another book, which will, which will appear later this year. As Science Inc. Right, you want to flesh flesh that out for no pun intended there uh, <laughs> a, a, a little bit, and uh, oh, Alex no, no, will prepare a couple. We have some not. a couple of your favorite uh, picks, but how did that come about? Do you have any tattoos yourself? No, no, no. I'm clean. I'm You're clean. clean. Um, you could be buried in yeah, a Jewish so, cemetery. So
1: what ha- <laughs> <laughs> That's one. of the- So, um, I I had no idea about that. Oh yeah. So here's Schrodinger's tat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this dead is, and alive uh, right <laughs> yeah exactly exactly someone who just completely loves quantum physics and uh just wanted to embrace that on his arm uh and so this is this is the thought experiment where uh, you know a cat can be alive and dead at the same time thanks to the uh um the multiple states that things can be in in, in quantum physics uh and um so i mean basically what happened was that i one day uh I was uh I was at a birthday party for my nephew who was uh turning 3 at the time I believe and um a friend of ours uh was a who's a geneticist at Harvard he was playing in the pool with his kids and I s- noticed that he had a DNA tattoo on his shoulder. Oh yeah. And I was like, "Oh yeah. is that this said, one? That's another guy That's with That's another with guy that with t- DNA posing next to the James Watson who looks a little um uh, I don't know. I'm not sure if that's bemused or befuddled. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> what's happening with this generation of geneticists? Yeah, that's an Irish geneticist who uh, who asked Watson if he could uh, pose with him with that. Um, so this other guy, uh, Bob Data, he's at Harvard, and so uh, I, I saw the DNA and I was like, well, that's pretty cool. And he's like, you know, what's really cool is that it spells my wife's initials in genetic code. Really? And I thought, man, yeah. Talk about geek love. Yeah. So, so, so that got me thinking, and I, and on my blog, I just said, "Are, are you, are you scientists out there hiding some tattoos from us?" And th- yeah, this is the kind of stuff I would get. This is fulvic acid. This is a molecule that's in soil, you know, that's everywhere. It's just a big old, uh, you know, hydrocarbon. The guy who got this, he's uh, got his uh, PhD in chemistry at Cornell, and he said, I wanted to get this so that I could remember that there are, in fact, things that are more painful than getting a PhD in chemistry in Cornell. Ah. So, um, yeah. So it turned out that there are... Um, a lot of people with some pretty mind-blowing tattoos. There's Darwin's finches we were talking about.
0: Oh, I uh, wasn't even seeing that. Yeah. It was like one of those illusions of the old lady or the young That's woman. Right. I, I was kind of seeing this butterfly thing like they were like wings or a pattern, but those are Darwin's finches and those are four different beaks. Right. Right.
1: Right. Now, this is an example of just how much these tattoos mean to people. So this is a woman. Um, she's at Tulane right now. She's a developmental biologist, but she's uh, from Turkey. And she does a lot of work in Turkey in terms of um, education on evolution. She translates a lot of evolution websites into Turkish and so on. And Turkey is dealing with a lot of creationists as well. And so, you know, this this means a whole lot to her. I mean, mm-hmm. this is this is a deeply meaningful thing. And, you know, it's it's just interesting how people um express that with the with these tattoos and you know some are funny and some are quite touching yeah. this is um this is the old uh image that people had of sperm ah.
0: uh,
1: of the homunculus you know so oh, that little there's a humunculus inside up. there i see yeah right um and so that's this is this is a, a drawing i believe it's based on kind of based on a drawing from around 1700 you know back when people um believed in what was called preformationism so they thought the person was all
0: right, um,
1: tucked up in a sperm and ready to go. That's mean, they why, didn't know that women had eggs. <laughs> that's why masturbation is murder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all those little people, you know, you got to be yeah. thinking about them. They're all, they're all waiting to to, to unfurl. What's funny is that, you know, the, you know, so why? But why? But why would a guy? Why would a guy get a picture like that on his arm? I mean, that goes all the way around his arm. That seems right. kind of weird. Well, this is a guy named Scott Picknick who studies the biology of sperm hmm. uh, and real sperm, uh, not things with little heads inside, of them, people inside them, but he's really interested in how, for example, um, you know, sperm compete with each other uh, to get to the egg. There's a little race that goes on. Right. And uh, in a lot of animals, you know, you, the female might mate with two or more males and there's sperm from different males. And whoever gets to the egg first wins. And so there's this actually this this there's this huge evolutionary arena inside the female's body, and and all the adaptations that sperm can use to win are
0: are are evolving. So right. for there's example, like linebackers. There's like there's like yeah. strategize, and it's and yeah. I, it's a, it for it's it goes along with the spectrum of like the the most promiscuous primates have the most elaborate uh, behavior in their sperms and the ones that right. are the most monogamous uh, don't right. need to. Right,
1: right. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, I mean, just one of the simple things is just sheer numbers. So, you know, uh, a chimpanzee has um, a lot of sperm uh, in, in its testes and because basically it's just trying to, like, create an army that's, and maybe one of that army will get to the egg first um, instead of the sperm from another male. <laughs> um and yeah so so you know again uh there's like this whole world in the in a, in a tattoo um and you know but i now that I've got hundreds of them, I sort of felt obligated uh to yeah. write a book and fortunately, there was a publisher who was really gung ho about it, and I work with these beautiful uh these book packagers who do designers who do beautiful work named scott scott and nix and um You know, we've put together this wonderful thing, and and I I really got obsessed with writing captions for them because, um, you know, there were all these stories behind them, but there was also all this science. And, and, I mean, I actually had to learn a lot of science just to write these things. So I was getting, you know, uh, science education by tattoo, which is not... Not what I was expecting to be doing at this age.
0: (laughs) Well, that's excellent. And so that'll be out later this year, Science, Inc. October. Tattoos of the Science Obsessed? Is that the subtitle? Yes, yeah. that's right. Science Inc. Yeah. Well, Carl, we're going to have to wrap it up. It's been really fun talking to you. Um, I actually, uh, in preparation, I'd, I'd made a blog post at sciencecomedian.com, my most recent. If you go to the blog section, the most recent blog post has some other links to some Carl Zimmer-related resources, uh, some recent articles you wrote, uh, something last year on consciousness, and um, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and interestingly, a list of Science book recommendations that they weren't just your recommendations they were from no. your readers as well at your yeah blog. these were it was a list of uh, a high school teacher said hey I'm
1: going to be assigning um, some reading in my science class you know what are good high school science books and and the sort of collective wisdom of of my readers and people uh, on Twitter is is uh, better than my own I would say, and so I just opened it up opened it up and got Tons of great selections. I, I feel like I, there are a few there that I need to 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 either read or reread now. Yeah, yeah me so too. It's, it's good.
0: Jerry Coyne, "Why Evolution Is True." I, I've i been wanting to read that one.
1: It's That's a good one. Good. Yeah. yeah,
0: but everything. Robert Sapolsky to a little bit of Richard Feynman and Oliver Sacks and Edward O. Wilson and James Watson and Bill Bryson. Quite a quite a collection of books on a variety of subjects. Um, yeah. Richard Preston and Steve Johnson. So um, thank you very much, Carl. And uh, uh, congrats on all the cool stuff. I saw that the other thing was your textbook on evolution got a very nice little write up um, as uh, because textbooks aren't always written by um, uh, science r- writers. I guess that was the gist in the review. Mm. Is that true? Who writes the textbooks? My- Who's scientific. responsible for the boring tone of <laughs> typical textbooks? <laughs>
1: Uh, I'll have to put that on scientists. I'm afraid <laughs> there are some scientists right. who are wonderful writers. You named a whole bunch of them, Robert yeah. Sapolsky, Oliver Sacks and so on. Um, and, but, um, but, uh, you know, there's, I think there's more, there needs to be more training and writing in the scientific community. That's something that I hope I can help with. Um, because, um, yeah, I, I there's a lot of, uh, unnecessary, um, uh, torture in in reading stuff by scientists yeah and i think it's just because they're not they're not they haven't they've been trained in how to sequence genomes and to dig up fossils they haven't been trained in writing
0: yes well then that that keeps you employed and 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 others (laughs) yeah (laughs)
1: Yeah,
0: well i guess so (laughs) well thanks for joining me carl zimmer is uh hey uh, good yeah, thank you very much. And Carl thank, is at com. Yeah, I'll let you say thank you in there somewhere eventually, possibly. <laughs> um, but com at Carl Zimmer on Twitter, at sciencecomedian.com. Check my latest blog post to see some great resources that will point you towards more Carl. And uh, thank you very much, Carl. And, thank you, uh, sir. We'll, we'll, we'll set you free. And uh, next week, um, we'll have a different show here on Dr. Kiki's Science Hour. Thank you very much for listening and participating if you did. (laughs) Oh, you certainly did. Thanks a lot.